That was a beautiful number. Captures the exact message of the communion table set before us today. It was for me that he died. For me, he was forsaken. Isn't that just alarming to stop and think through? That we and what we are and what we have done brought about the crucifixion of our Savior? He says, it's for you, I do this. And I know he spoke that out of words of love, right? But it's still alarming to think. You know, there's, there's sometimes you feel a little bit funny when, you, when you've done something and somebody has to pay a, an extra amount just to cover up what you've done, uh, to make up for what you've done. And, and maybe that makes us feel a little guilty at times. But this is, this is incredible that our Lord loves us this much. And, and I thank you, choir, for sharing that message with us this morning. Beautiful number. We are going to spend time in Isaiah 53 here this morning. Uh, we have four, usually four, but this year five weeks uh, of the entire year that we have a communion service, which is the last Sunday. If there's five Sundays in a month, it's the last Sunday of that month that we will have our communion service. And there are actually five this year, and uh, what's kind of uh, fun about that is the last one for our year will be on December 31st, which is also a Sunday morning. So I, I kind of like the way that all set up for us uh, this year. But my desire has been when we spend time uh, at a, on a communion service to get our focus on that part of the service. This is not just a tack on at the end of the service. Um, or keep on my, my routine, and then we're just saying, oh, by the way, it's communion time, and let's do that too. Uh, I'd like to give it a full focus as we get this opportunity. And Isaiah 53 is especially where I'm drawn to uh, think and to share when I think of the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf. And so there, we will be doing this for some time each time we're at a communion service. We'll go to Isaiah 53. There are two things that uh, communion brings to my mind. Um, there's, there's several things here, but two things particular that come to mind each time we cross this, this place. And one is how great we are sinners. That's just astounding to me. And the communion uh, message always reminds me of how great our sin is. But I'm glad that's not all it shares with us. It also tells us how great is his mercy. And that is what we're here to rejoice in as well. So on the one hand, we come and we can't help but grieve over our sin. But if that's all we have, uh, that sounds hopeless. We also should be some of the most thankful people on this earth when we consider his mercy. So we're going to do that here this morning. Let's talk to him in prayer before we do. Heavenly Father, you sent your son to us. You knew exactly what he would undergo here on this earth. You had planned it so. That he should come and dwell among men and be rejected by men. You knew that he would be uh, persecuted in every conceivable way. Nailed to a cross to die. Buried in a tomb to stay. But your plan is so much better than all that. For you knew that he would rise the third day. You knew, Lord, that uh, his love and his mercy and his grace would be extended to us. And you knew that we would become your children through faith in Jesus Christ. 
So we praise you, Lord, for the plan you had, that we can be participants in all these things. And we can meet here this morning with hearts full of joy, as well as hearts that are overwhelmed with the love that you have for us. Thank you, Lord, for doing all this. And as we sent set our attention upon you and especially upon our Savior, keep our focus where it ought to be. Help us to to dwell on these things and to rejoice in these things. And, and when we participate together as a reminder of these things, may we truly be thankful people. So encourage us through this time in your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Today I'd like to uh, share with you the three R's of sin. They say there are three R's of uh, uh, education. Reading and writing and arithmetic. And I don't know who came up with that because they don't start all with R's, do they? Um, so if they can do that with that, I can do that with mine. And I've got three R's of sin, and that's rejection, rebellion, and depravity. And there is an R in depravity. So that fits okay, doesn't it? Um, the, I don't know. You, you know our modern conveniences and such. If you ever work with little iPads or computers and it's got the spell check on it, it's kind of fun when you're typing in a word and you mean that word and then the computer corrects it for you. And uh, uh, one of the things it does for me, if I, if I make any comment like, well, I'm pastoring the church in Hillsdale, it changes it to pestering. And, and it does that every single time. And I've got to go back and check and make sure it doesn't do that. Uh, uh, yeah, be careful with things like that. So I've got three R's for you, and they won't match your spell check, but it's rejection, rebellion, and depravity. And those three things are, are shown to us in this passage. Um, there, are, there are about eight, well, actually, I believe there are eight, significant facts taught to us in Isaiah 53. And last time we were uh, sharing a communion service in January, we dealt with the first one of that list, and it was the fact that we are sinful people and deserve God's wrath. That's clearly declared in this chapter, as well as all through Scripture. But that's a fact. Today, the, the fact I add to that is that we are rebellious and refuse to listen to God's truth. That is also a fact that we bear. I'll give you the other uh, set as well, that we will get to these as the time comes for us. Uh, the third fact it would teach us is that Christ came into our spiritually barren, morally depraved world. Thank the Lord for that. The, the fourth time we're addressed this is that Christ took our sin and our punishment. And the fifth one we will share together is that Christ took our ridicule and our abuse. If you're trying to keep up with me, you probably can't. You'll just have to wait till they come. Uh, number six is Christ's death satisfied our need, his need, and the Father's need. Oh, that's a theme. Uh, we'll get to that eventually. Next year sometime, I think. And number seven, some will believe the message. Some will believe the message. But number eight is especially my favorite. Christ will receive the glory. And all of these are taught in Isaiah 53. It's a fascinating chapter. 
and maybe you might want to spend a little time just reading through it again and uh, appreciating what he has done. But today we're going to look again at the, the picture of sinfulness and the fact that we are rebellious. As it's taught in this passage, we're rebellious and refuse to listen to God's truth. The first R I gave to you was rejection. Uh, rejection, by definition, is to refuse to acknowledge or grant, to refuse to accept or keep, and it has in it the concept of denial. Denial. And there are two key words in our text here, and the verses I'd like to share with you are verses 1, 3, 4, 6, and 8. Let's just read through these together. First one, Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? It's a question that needs to be answered. Who has believed? In verse number 3, He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows, and acquainted with grief. And then watch our response. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. The next picture is given to us in verse number 4. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. And yet look again at our response. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. Then travel down a little bit farther. Verse number 6. Our response. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each has turned to his own way. And the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. And finally, verse number 8. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due? Who considered it? Who considered it? These are all speaking of rejection, rebellion, depravity. Rejection, refusing to acknowledge, refusing to accept it, refusing to keep it. There's a sense of denial here. And in this, we have that one key word in verse number one is the word believe. Who will believe this message? Who will believe it? The report that we are to give. Belief is important. Wouldn't you agree with that? It's essential. All the way through Scripture we're told that there's a need for us to believe and, and to live by faith and to receive truth uh, as it is given to us. Uh, uh, that's to confirm something, to support something, to believe something. It has the idea of faith and trust in it. A.W. Pink, uh, a very profound writer, uh, former pastor and now with the Lord, made this statement I thought was an excellent definition of faith. He says, to believe, in Christ, to believe in Christ is to have confidence in and to rely upon Him. It is to trust Him and to rest upon Him. That's more than just a word, isn't it? There's an action related to it where he says it's to have confidence in Him, to rely upon Him, to trust Him, to rest upon him. I like that picture especially at the end there. To rest upon him. That's the concept of belief. Well, Isaiah starts to write and says, who's doing that? When the message is being declared about what Christ has done for us, who's doing that? Who's resting upon him, trusting him, relying upon him? Who's doing that? 
But rejection does not do that. It does not. The opposite of belief you might find uh, kind of interesting. I pulled this out of uh, the source. The opposite of belief is doubt, to be doubtful, to disbelieve, to discredit, to misbelieve, to refuse to admit or believe, doubt the truth of, to be skeptical, not believe one's ears or eyes, distrust, mistrust, suspect, have doubts, harbor suspicions, have one's doubts, have cold feet, take with a grain of salt, be from Missouri. Wait, that's not there. Yeah. We're just like that, aren't we? Skeptical. Critical at times, but skeptical especially. Distrust. How many of you like that when the phone rings and it's a number you've never seen before? You're, you set up your guard, don't you, before you answer the phone. You're, you don't know. Isaiah is dealing with people full of distrust. Misbelief. What is rejection? What it really comes down to is rejection. Uh, there's several verses that John writes to us in First John. I mean, John chapter 1, rather. Very interesting picture is he starts his gospel. He doesn't start it in the fashion that uh, Matthew, Mark, or Luke had recorded. Because John's standing back some uh, 60 years later and looking back over the whole picture of things. And says, you know, I, I've noticed this about the response of my people to the fact that the Savior came. And he starts to write in the first chapter about the witness of Jesus Christ stands before them as God in the flesh. And how do they take that? When John 1, verse number 10, he says, He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him, did not recognize him, did not acknowledge him, did not understand and then verse number 11 is, is even more alarming than that. It says, He came to His own, and those who were His own did not receive Him. That's the word for rejection. They did not receive Him. They rejected Him. And, and the word received here is rather quite fascinating. The Greek word is, is an intense word. It's a word of taking somebody alongside you. Even used in taking a wife is at times. That's pretty intense concept in this. Uh, taking to one side. And, and here, Jesus came to His own people and His own people would not even take Him alongside. They would not receive Him. They refused Him. They rejected Him. And intensely so. We have that uh, highlighted in several places. Like in John chapter 3. John chapter 3, verse 19 and 20. Where the words are saying, This is the judgment that the light has come into the world. And the men loved the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. There is something fascinating in this that it just reveals the heart of a, of a person outside of Christ. The light has come. The light has come. Now, many of us, probably all of us, don't like somebody turning on the lights like 2 in the morning after we've been sound asleep. 
you're used to the dark and such, and all of a sudden somebody clicks on the light switch. That's a little alarming, and usually it's not greeted with happy tone, right? Boy, I'm glad you did that. We usually don't say that. This world did not welcome Christ. He is the light, and they love the darkness. As far as I've been able to tell so far in my study of, of God's Word, this is the only time the word agape is used in a negative way. Almost all the way through Scripture, it's the strongest of love, and it's always directed toward God and, and toward God's people and what God has given to us. And we treasure that word. It's a strong, strong love. And this is one time that I know for sure it is referencing an evil man about his evil ways and his evil deeds. He loves the darkness. That's a powerful phrase. That gives you a clue as to why uh, they are so um, intense in rejecting him. They refuse him because of their love for sin. That's what it comes down to. Now, in Matthew 23, perhaps you're familiar as well, in verse number 37, that Jesus Christ stood over the city of Jerusalem, right on the heels of the great uh, uh, triumphal entry, as we call it, He's gone into the city and, and he's uh, uh, been honored by the people with their palm branches and their coats in the road and declaring him king. And yet he knew their heart. And here he's up on the hillside looking down over the city and he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I wanted to gather you as a hen would gather her chicks, but you would not. That's rejection. You would not. He said. You see, they refused him because of love for themselves as well as for their sin. They would not come to him. They would not. One other time it shows up in Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7 you have a scene where Stephen, if you recall, a deacon in the church is declaring the message of Christ to his own people Israel. And as he's going through it, he really marches them through a whole history lesson of the Old Testament. And he shares with them all the things that God has done for them and all the things that they have done to refuse the Lord. Refuse the Lord. And he gets to the point of Jesus Christ. And once he starts to bring up that name, the audience goes crazy. They go absolutely crazy. They don't want to hear it, they said. Even to the point where Luke records that they stuck their fingers in their ears. They were gnashing their teeth, and they charged upon Stephen and stoned him to death. They weren't rejecting Stephen. They were rejecting Christ. There was a message of Christ that they were hearing. And one more time, they, they hated the truth. And so it was revealed their refusing him, their rejecting him was due to their hatred for truth. So we have this picture given to us in Scripture of of a group of people who love their sin, who love themselves, and they hate the truth. That's the characteristics of those who refuse him. Those who have refused him. Isaiah started his question, who's going to believe our message? Who's going to believe it? Because if we don't believe it, we reject it, is what it comes down to. We don't believe it because we love our sin and we love ourselves and we, we hate the truth. Do we really have confidence in? Have we come to rely upon Him? Do we trust Him? 
do we rest upon him? Those are the words that are standard in the simple question of belief. And if we don't believe, we reject it. And that's what Isaiah begins with first. That's the first step, if you will, in the definition of sin today. Our R is rejection. And it's true of mankind, isn't it? They reject the truth. There's another word that we saw as well in verse number 8, where he said in Isaiah 53, 8, By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut out, out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due? That's a question. Like verse 1 was a question. Verse 8 is a question. Who even considered it? You might have the word declare in the King James or speak of in the NIV. But the idea is, is who's ever ever thought about it? Looked into it? Who's ever occupied themselves with it? Even meditated upon it? Considered? Considered what Christ has done for them? If we take that word consider and use it in a negative context, it's the word complain. And some people are really good at complaining, aren't they? That's all you ever hear. But turn it around in its positive sense, and who cannot say enough about what Christ has done for them? Who's even considered what he has done and has spoken of it and can't seem to say enough? Few people, few people it seems, when Isaiah is writing, considered his death as important. Even down to the day he died, few people considered his death to be important. I hope that's still not the trend today. At least not with us. But that's the picture of rejection, you see. It's not important. I don't want to hear it. I don't want to... I I just don't believe that. That's what Isaiah dealt with. That's rejection. The second word I gave you for an R was rebellion. And that's a little bit stronger, isn't it? It speaks of a resistance as well. Of a resistance uh, to go against the force of something or the effect of something. It literally is to fight against it. That's rebellion. It's to fight against it. So rather than talk of the importance of Christ and His death on our behalf, His death and His mercy and His grace and how great that is, verse number 3 in Isaiah says, He was despised. And forsaken of man, a man of sorrows, acquainted with griefs, and like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. That word despised kind of stands out there. Not only was he despised, but he was despised by us. He was despised by us. It shows up twice. In that sentence, he was despised and forsaken of men, and he was despised and we did not esteem him. He was despised. Words despicable are in the thesaurus next to that word. Despised, disdain, scorn. An attitude that leads to disobedience. Peter says it that way in his epistle, his first epistle. He tells you that somebody who does not believe is one who disobeys the truth. They disobey the word. Some people will try to soften the word disbelief a little bit, won't they? They say, well, it's just not their preference. It's just not the way they see things. But the way God records it is, records it is 
One who disbelieves is one who disobeys the truth. What he sees it as is rebellion. Rebellion to the truth of his word. And Peter brings that up. In verse 3, it says he was forsaken of men. Forsaken. (laughs) Abandoned. Left. Deserted. Remember where the disciples went when Christ was crucified? Everywhere but there, right? They disappeared. We found them later, locked in a room. But they had abandoned him. They had left him and deserted him. Verse 3 says, we hide our face from him. See, he was despicable. He was despised by us. We see him coming and we turn our face the other way. We see him on our side of the road, so we quickly go to the other side of the road. So that we don't have to encounter him. David said that in Psalm 31, I believe. He says, that's the way my friends and my neighbors are treating me right now, Lord. Every time they see me, they get on the other side of the road. They can't look at me. They don't want to look at me. This was true of our Savior, that men hid their face from him. That's an intentional act, isn't it? That's just not a casual, oh, well, I didn't notice you. This is an intentional act on on the part of man to go away from him. The Lord equates that with rebellion. Verse 3 says that we did not esteem him. That's the value term. We did not give value to him at all. We, we're not preoccupied with him. We saw no purpose in him. Thought nothing of him, is the way Isaiah writes it. Uh, the prime ingredients of rebellion are right there, aren't they? No value. Don't want to see him. Don't want to, to be around. I'm going to forsake him. I'm going to disobey. I'm going to walk away. That's resistance to the truth. Isaiah is addressing people like that in this letter. As he starts to write here, this is the way the Lord was treated. We ourselves, I think those are strong words, aren't they, in verse 4. We ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. You know, another way of saying this is, we thought he deserved it. Ouch. But that's what the Jews looked upon him as. He deserves this. He deserves this. He must have done something. He deserves this. We thought he deserved to be beaten and killed. What a viewpoint. One of the best, absolute best phrases I'd ever read in a commentary was under this verse. After it said... Uh, we thought he deserved to be beaten and, and killed. The comment was just three words. We were wrong. That's all the man had to say. We were wrong. But that's the nature of rebellion, isn't it? And that's the second R in our list when we review the sin that Jesus Christ paid for on that cross. You know, he paid for our rejection He paid for our rebellion. Isn't that incredible that he would do that? Knowing that it was coming upon him at that moment. And yet he willingly paid that for us. Incredible, incredible mercy. The third R is the word depravity. Which, like I said, fourth letter in is an R, so it counts. Depravity. God is so patient. It's incredible. 
when Peter starts to write about that, he says, you know, how do you count God's patience? What's one day compared to a thousand? You start to add up one year and a thousand years, and you go through it, and, and yet it says, and that's God's patience toward us. That's God's patience toward us. When you see something that you despise greatly, that has gone all the way against your whole system, don't you just want to stomp it to death? If that little critter is crawling into your kitchen, how much mercy do you have in your heart at that moment? Same thing with the snakes in the middle of the road. You happen to have a car, 4,000 pounds? Guess what? Snake doesn't have a chance. If the Lord looked upon us that way, would we appreciate that? We would deserve it. But look at his mercy toward us. He's not willing that any should perish, he says. That's incredible mercy when you consider what these people are doing, rejecting and rebelling against him. The fact is that God does punish sin. That day does come. Talk to Noah about it someday. He said, the Lord says, I'm going to punish mankind. I'm going to wipe him off the face of the earth. No, I'm going to save you and I'm going to save your family. But I will, I will punish this earth. And did it start to rain? 120 years later, but it rained and it flooded and God kept his word. They use that same argument in the New Testament concerning God and his patience toward man. Yes, he's patient. Yes, he's merciful. But will he also... Show them his wrath. Yes. We have a very merciful God. We can stand here today and and rejoice in that mercy. But when we think it through, God tells us what depravity looks like. I find this to be essential in Genesis chapter 6. This is a picture of mankind just before the flood. God gives us the definition of depravity. Genesis 6, verse number 5. I've read this to you before, but I'm going to do it again because it's so clear as to what the Lord sees. Genesis 6, 5 says, Then the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth, that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Man, that's a pretty intense verse. It even gets uh, stronger as you start to read it from the Greek or from the Hebrew translation. Hebrew, the Hebrew translation says, Then Jehovah saw that the men of earth were abundantly morally depraved, and the whole impulse of the inventions of his heart were only morally depraved the whole day. That's That's depravity. That's the intention of a man's heart. Giving him the opportunity to go his own way, that's the way he's going to go every time. Toward sinful things. Isaiah 53, in verse number 5, we have the same concept given to us, perhaps in in more gentler terms. Verse 6, rather. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. There you've got the picture again, don't you? Man in his depravity is is guiding him the other direction. And yet the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. 
stop right there and listen to that again. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity. Our rejection? Yes. Our rebellion? Yes. Our depravity? Yes. Our iniquity? All of it is laid upon him. Amazing, isn't it? I like the way Ephesians will point this out. He starts to describe how we were children of God by nature. We, we were uh, dead in our trespasses and sins. We walked in the course of this world. And, and on and on and on he goes. And you really start to feel pretty lousy. The first three verses of chapter 2 in Ephesians. And then verse 4 pops on the scene. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love for us, even while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Isn't that astounding? God's mercy still, knowing who we are and what we've done, is extended to us. I have this little card in front of me. It came from uh, uh, Spurgeon's devotional, Morning and Evening. It says this, My hope lives not because I am not a sinner, but because I am a sinner for whom Christ died. My trust is not that I am holy, but that being unholy, He is my righteousness. My faith rises not, rests not upon what I am or shall be or feel or know, but in what Christ is, in what He has done, and in what He is doing for me now. Without Christ, the three R's stand out, don't they? Rejection and rebellion and depravity, they stand out. And yet with Christ, we can see these words that John once recorded. See how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called children of God. What a difference that cross has made. What a difference it has made. It's taken away the rejection and the rebellion and the depravity and replaced it with the love of God. And we approach this table today, and, and we don't make any mistakes in our understanding here that any of us are saved is a miracle. It's an absolute miracle. John W. Peterson wrote it in such beautiful words. It took a miracle to put the stars in place. It took a miracle to hang the worlds in space. But when he saved my soul, cleansed and made me whole, it took a miracle of love and grace. That's what we see when we share this together. When we meditate upon it and hear the words again of who we are, yes, that grieves us, doesn't it? But we have to also see it's the mercy of our Lord that's shown in this table. It's the mercy of our Lord toward us. And for that, we ought to be the most thankful people on this earth. Have a word of prayer with you, and then the men will come and we'll share this meal together. Gracious Lord, thank you so much for what you have done. Our words are so inadequate, we know. But we thank you, Lord, for it. And as we participate in this communion service here today, Lord, truly, may we remember what you have done for us, and may we be thankful. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.